Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, here to stand with you against autonomous technologies, runaway markets, and weaponized media that threaten human cognition, solidarity, and survival. It's time to play together. This is Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, media and technology scholar Jamie Cohen. This technology is not just addicting, but is pushed on us. It is something that as a consumerist approach, we want people to participate in it because talk about captive audiences. Jamie will be helping us understand the commodity of authenticity, the way our social experiences online become another form of employment, as well as how to sound like an authentic YouTuber. just want to remind everybody that we're back doing Team Human live shows. We're doing one in New York City next Thursday night, December 13th, 6 p.m. at Civic Hall. You can find out more at teamhuman.fm and click on events. Our guests are going to be Mark Pesci. He's the co-inventor of VRML. It was virtual reality markup language. He's the author of a bunch of books. He founded the uh, digital graduate program at USC. And he's doing his own podcast now, The Next Billion Seconds. He's going to be talking to us about blockchain and all sorts of new digital innovations and how they affect what it means to be human. And we're also going to have Penny Abewardina. She's New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs, really running the mayor's office uh, in the way that it's trying to kind of reinstate the city as the real nexus for social change and things like climate change and economic equality. Um, she's a, a powerful thinker and doer, and I'm really excited to have her. So you can find out about those events and more on teamhuman.fm, as well as the coming Team Human Tour. 
I've become really obsessed lately with this trio of movies on the New York Times website called Operation Infection, spelled with a K, Infection. And they're not really getting that much player attention, but for me, these are really the most mind-blowing little documentaries since Adam Curtis's Century of the Self series. And these movies, what they do is they chronicle the Russian effort to spread conspiracy theories in the U.S. since the 1980s. They begin with the story that AIDS was concocted in a U.S. military lab, which was a Russian story planted in an Indian newspaper. I didn't even know that. Um, right up through the Hillary Clinton uh, running a child sex ring out of the basement of a pizzeria story. Uh, and the movies show that you know, 85% or more of the Russian intelligence budget and activity was dedicated just to promoting fake news stories in America. This like super long game to make and sow divisions in America between Americans by getting these people that are called useful idiots, like, you know, uh, radio hosts, to spread these crazy conspiracy theories and blame one another for uh, what's going wrong in our country. And really, I mean, for anybody who's still confused or doubting the Russian exploitation of Trump's campaign to sow division in America or the campaign's infiltration by Russian operatives from Maria Butina to Paul Manafort, these videos are, are a must-see. But they're really less important important for their indictment of Trump or the agency hired around him than for how they expose the way we all continue to buy into all of this manufactured animosity. You know, the, the liberal elite did not infuse the landscape with today's most belligerent forms of identity politics, but neither did the far right of America invent these most contagious conspiracies stories about Hillary Clinton or George Soros. These are the result of four decades and hundreds of millions of dollars of targeted disinformation by Russia. And even more damaging than any of the stories themselves is how they make us feel about the other side, who we believe would have stooped to this low level of shameful lying and rhetoric, you know, to say that the the people that were murdered, the children in, in Connecticut school shootings were, were actors. You know, Alex Jones didn't think of that himself. He's one of the useful idiots spreading a story that was thought of by Russian agents. And they got reviewed every year in their, in their employee review. How many stories did you come up with? How many did you get planted? From the Russian perspective, what they're doing is really just tit for tat. The former Soviet Union, the, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, collapsed in no small part because of the economic and political pressure coming from the United States throughout the Cold War. And when the Soviet Union fell, George Bush, Judge H.W. Bush, he was actually really careful not to gloat because he probably understood that a vengeful Russia would be a dangerous Russia. And just as we helped break up the Soviet Union into Moldova and Estonia, Ukraine, Armenia, and all those other countries, Russia had its eye on undermining the European Union, breaking up NATO, and leaving its member states isolated and beyond the influence and protection of the U.S. And although Gorbachev at the time, he was a moderate, 
the KGB under Putin continued the massive campaign to launch conspiracy theories in the West. And as Putin rose in power, his efforts became better funded. I guess it might have looked ridiculous at the time that the best Russia could do was was spread conspiracy theories on late night radio, but Russia was playing a really long game. They were identifying the existing disagreements and hot button issues in the American population and then amplifying them. They were basically playing the viral media game. Russia targeted like-minded communities from gun owners and Christian fundamentalists to black activists and anti-war organizers with extreme versions of their own beliefs and sensationalist lies about its opponents. The, the objective, in the words of the KGB agents, was, quote, to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite an abundance of information, no one is able to come to a sensible conclusion in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their communities, and their country, unquote. So all of this effort was really just intended to divide America, to divide the empire back into separate self-interested nations. And then in that landscape, Russia would be relatively bigger and more powerful. And of course, it worked better than they planned. Right? Not only is one of their most trustworthy conspiracy theorists in the White House, but America is seriously considering isolationism as a national policy. So rather than trace this isolationism back to the propaganda and the fake news that spawned it, now we have to engage with nationalism in its own right. It's the way many Americans, and, and by the same process, Brexiters now feel. And it almost doesn't matter how or why they came to feel this way. So let's look at their argument. A smaller, Less influential United States is attractive in a lot of ways. It may not work so well for a growth-based capitalism, which is always dependent on expansion into new markets, but that could force positive changes in extractive corporatism. It also relieves America of the short-term expenses of protecting other people in other places. Yeah, there's a certain shame in standing by while people in China, Russia, Rohingya, the Middle East are oppressed. But humanitarian crises are not the responsibility of a nation going it alone. Besides, America first doesn't necessarily mean we can't help other folks, just that we remove the plank from our own eyes so we can see clearly enough to remove the speck from our brothers. I know I sound too sarcastic when I'm saying this, but I'm trying to make their argument. It would be nice to think that Putin is simply encouraging us to accept our place in a new brotherhood of equal nations. The problem, though, the problem with our retreat from the global stage is that Putin is advancing. Yes, he wants us to be a divided, paranoid, self-obsessed nation, but only so he can pursue his own expansion into Ukraine, Syria, Iran, and everywhere. While America dismantles its global apparatus, Russia will restore its own. That's why I think if America truly wants to adopt a less interventionist policy, it should do so, but not for the wrong reasons or in the wrong ways. There's a difference between empire and alliances. 
NATO and the United Nations are not extensions of American empire. They don't have to be. But they are compromises made in the interests of a peaceful global order. If anything, maintaining a nation's economic and military security without alliances is harder and much, much more expensive. If America really does retreat into nationalism and exit its trade blocks and dismantles its strategic alliances, the rest of the world will be left to negotiate arrangements with Russia and China instead, countries that prefer domination over alliance. This is where our constant state of distraction and infighting could prove debilitating. We are so ready to see our domestic adversaries as Russia would paint them that we're losing sight of who it is that's turning us against one another, how it is they want us to respond, and what they mean to do after that. We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. You can support Team Human and even get a copy of my upcoming book, Team Human, by subscribing to our show. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support. You can also read my columns based on the show's monologues at medium.com slash at rushcop. I'm delighted to be with Jamie Cohn in the basement squat today. He's a professor at Malloy College, where he started the new media program and researches social media and virtual reality. He's a former reality TV producer who now looks at the way mediated realities can become more authentic than real realities. So your your work even for a young scholar, your work is varied, mm-hmm. and and but it it all relates to team human in different ways. The two areas that I kind of want to look at are one is um, social media, uh, uh, YouTube publication. Um, what what is it when people are kind of demonetized, and how do they how does their work and self expression change? based on what the algorithms are favoring and not favoring. And then the other main area is kind of virtual reality. And and where is that going? And is the market leading it? Or is the human imagination leading it? And both of these topics are interesting to me and the Team Human audience in particular, because we are looking at the question of human autonomy in a digital age. So how does YouTube for instance, help people express who they are? How is it promoting their agency, their economic independence and all that? Um, How is virtual reality doing that? And how are they not? You know, how are they leading us toward a world where algorithms are going to uh, direct our hearts and minds toward whatever it is algorithms are supposed to be getting, which is usually money at the expense of everything else that matters to us. So I guess what I want to do is is evaluate with you the 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 promise and peril of both of these technologies and to find out how how happy or not are you about where they are and and what they're doing. Yeah, I think the the term the promise and peril, I think that's like <laughs> a good t- book title for what this actually could be. I'm working on a project called The Commodity of Authenticity. And so that's really my project where I'm working with YouTube. Simultaneously, I'm doing my research on a critical history of virtual reality. So it's like these two very distinct topics, but they both coincide through culture. And so I'm really weaving those together. And the commodity 
of authenticity, and or as I might say, like the commodification mm -hmm. of authenticity. That's correct. Yeah. Or, or do you mean that authenticity is itself now a commodity? So I'm talking about how authenticity itself has become, in our age, uh, quantized, and we're able to consider authenticity as a tool. And I don't mean I'm, I'm putting uh, you can't see it, but I'm putting authenticity in the scare quotes here. Authenticity is can be mobilized in YouTube as a method of gaining audience members or tricking them, and, and tricking is a, in scare quotes too, tricking them into viewing more by thinking that you're, it's real. Because YouTubers have a very smart technique into speaking to their audience that seems like you're, they're your friend. But in doing so, they've learned this tool so well that it's been mobilized in a method. And that method is now constructed in a way that it can be gamed. And gamed through analytics, gamed through reviews, gamed through other viewers manipulating and watching it. And also, most importantly, gamed through the algorithm that keeps these viewers watching and that it's it's a term known as time spent and so the time spent on the platform is increased by every time this tool of authenticity is used over and over by different youtubers right so let me go back let me go back to authenticity itself sure absolutely. so so authenticity can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people oh yeah i mean so authenticity when i first started using the term it was more like you know uh uh the, the Pike Place Market or the Quincy Market in Boston or the South Street Seaport in New York, that right. they find these dumps and then they they find architects who reconstruct them as if they're like Sturbridge Village colonial places. And instead of Toys R Us, you get the ye old kite shop and, you know, Mama's Gems and Jellies, which are just smuckers with new labels on it or whatever, that that feels authentic to us now in a what you're the authenticity you're talking about is almost more the human casual authenticity that we should expect if someone's taking an iphone and setting it up in their house to make a youtube of them talking into the camera like when my daughter does it that's authentic it's her speech her words her flubbing up and all that but then people get kind of professional and then they want to look authentic on top of that Right. I think authenticity here is codified by the viewer. So each authenticity is the niche market in which they're speaking to. So when your daughter's speaking to the camera or we're speaking together here, I'm trusting that we're speaking authentically, that we are speaking from our heart. We're not putting on a show. We're not present presenting ourselves like a version of ourselves to that audience. But because we're not being monetized at this moment, we're not expecting a monetary return right. or your daughter is, she's not presenting the monetary return version of herself. So the authenticity, the faux authenticity that I'm speaking about is when you've learned how to manipulate that algorithm or the viewing time to get you next up in the recommendation. So your version of you is the one that you want to be prioritized in the algorithm. So some uh, there's so many ways to go with this then all right so then take someone because i studied him for a while tyler oakley yes yeah that's know, my case kid. study yes right so yeah. he's like oh hello he, like, he starts all his videos what does he do um, hey guys hey everyone my name is tyler oakley and today i was thinking about how often i get to do really cool things hey everyone my name is tyler oakley and i moved my camera a tiny little bit and i feel like a new person Hey everyone, my name is Tyler Oakley and I am having the best day ever. I feel like I am bursting and I just feel like maybe I'm just gonna make like a one take video because that is how I'm feeling today. Hey everyone, it's Tyler and look who I'm with. It's Hillary. Oh my God. <laughs> Hi guys, <laughs> yep. it's me, I'm here. Oh, I mean, it's a manner, but it's like, oh, there's Tyler. And everybody I know, my, my niece and nephew, everyone, they think he's just real. 
That's just Tyler. That's Tyler being Tyler. And you'd say this is a little something other than a sweet gay college kid talking to his friends. I think Tyler is a very sweet gay kid from Michigan or wherever he's from. Is I think he actually is a version of authenticity that is original to YouTube. And I think he is one of the wonderful YouTubers. And I'm not just talking about him to amplify him. I just think that he is one of the few that is long lasting. And I've seen, um, and obviously from Generation Like, you see the case study in that. But what I try to recognize is that when he posted Raindrops, his seventh video, he privatized the previous six before that, because the previous six were for his friends. He what was do you mean by them. privatized? He, put, he still has them apparently online on his YouTube channel, but he won't let anybody see them. And what that often tells me is that that's another version of Tyler Oakley that we don't get access to. We get the version that's public of Tyler Oakley. And it's very possible the Tyler Oakley you've met and the Tyler Oakley I've spoken to is the Tyler Oakley that's made for us, the version that's made for us. And we'll never get to actually meet Tyler Oakley. So the Tyler Oakley is the presentation, sort of how Jenna Marbles has the name Jenna Marbles, but she's not Jenna Mori. Yeah, but we're never going to meet Bill Clinton or, no. or anybody either, right? Right. Even if we meet them. But they live in a public environment where Tyler's return, his his marketplace is video. His his market is talking about nothing. And so in delivering nothing, you have to figure out how to get the system to work to make you talk about nothing. Where a politician has to speak about politics, a uh, sell, uh, salesperson has to sell an object. He has to sell himself. And in order to sell himself, you think that he ends up, and all YouTubers, end up incorporating a certain kind of authenticity that has to do with certain feedback that they're getting from numbers and systems yes, in the platform. Yeah. I think he's admitted, I think many YouTubers admit it, that they watch their analytics. There's the real-time viewer on YouTube. You could watch people watching your content. So you could see at what point in your video people tune out or when more viewers will click to if they start at a certain moment. Well, that's the same like politicians would do, you know, when Frank Luntz would play back for politicians the video of them at the debate and then you see the little Democratic line going up or down or women going up or down. You know, when you so, so every time you use the word, um, uh, you know, whatever, appropriate, um, look, women respond favorably to that. So keep using that. Right. And, and they retune themselves. That's it. Integrity. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Reliability. There's the other one. You're going to use these to register whether you agree or disagree, whether you believe or disbelieve. The dials go from zero to 100. Climbing. Climbing, climbing, changing fuels. And so that tuning, that process of tuning is a tool. That's a method. In YouTube, because you're selling the brand of the human being. So Casey Neistat's a good example. His, he is a model for an ad agency that could constantly be utilized over and over to be selling Casey Neistat. But he also sells the product with himself. And so, Casey Neistat is just a YouTuber. He's a, one of the most famous YouTubers who represents, I mean, his most, re, his bit, the icon that I like to use is his Samsung ads. These very large, over-the-top ads that are like, do what you can. Allow me to introduce the rest of us. We're the makers, the directors, and, and the creators of this generation. We don't have big award shows or huge budgets or fancy cameras. But what we do have are our phones. And we've captured billions of moments from different angles, for different reasons, for millions of viewers, but with one thing in common. When we're told that we can't, we all have the same answer. 
watch me. And I love that commercial. And I call it a commercial. It's seen as like a call to action. Join our YouTuber community. But he's selling a Samsung phone. But it seems to us as if he's selling how to be a YouTuber. And that's really beautiful rhetoric on how to sell Casey. And so he's really selling himself as an identity that we can absorb. So he's not a politician. He's not trying to convert votes or trying to get some sort of policy change. What he's trying to do is get more people to participate in YouTube because the more people that participate in YouTube, the algorithm may point the next click to his video. So if they're modeling themselves after him. So these are original YouTubers. Like Tyler's old at this point. And I don't mean he's that physically old, but he's OG. He's like 2006 and seven. Right. He's not a middle schooler. Or right. Anything. Yeah. But we have new YouTubers. But the Casey day. guy, what does the Casey guy do? I mean, what... He's a filmmaker. I mean, he's a filmmaker. He's an innovator. He's an entrepreneur. So he went on YouTube. I mean, what was his... Did he have an expertise or a, a talent that yeah, he showed? Casey. He's, his talent is being he's Casey. being himself. <laughs> yes. And where does he broadcast from? Is there like a locale? Has, is there a thing? He has his own little studio that's a fair little, bit bigger than this room here, but it's a, bit, a studio that he does most of his vlogs from. And he brings in guests. He, and he gets very good interviews. He has uh, Robert Kinsel from YouTube. He was bringing major characters into the room, but he also prioritizes focusing on other YouTubers around him to make sure that the community, that's his big concept, is make sure the community is supported. And then every so often, his videos will incorporate sponsored content, somebody that's incorporated something into his work that he could promote or move forward without it making it look like he's selling that. It's a soft sell. So he's not doing the Taco Bell kind of stuff that no, Tyler, like Tyler does. does, where he literally licks his fingers and shows the taco to the but, screen. But Casey's expertise is a little bit is YouTubing and making films and all. So like a go cam or something is something that he could talk about. This was good when I shot this thing. I mean, so he does have some context. Yes. Yeah. And his context, though, has to be supported constantly by selling Casey Neistat. It's selling a consistent, himself. It's a consistent brand reselling. And they have that brand which has been spoken about on I think on Team Human a few times. It's just like we have the brand person, the making yourself a brand is in and of itself a new thing of the gig economy or the idea of social media itself. That that yourself has to be resold over and over again. So you could remain an identity that is doing that because it's just too oversaturated at this point. And how do you rise to the top? Well Casey himself, wasn't he part of the the kind of protest of YouTubers against yes. demonetization. Yeah. He was like sort of front and center with that. And I don't even understand quite that story that what that that YouTubers who did something wrong got demonetized. Yeah, so and demonetized means what? That that Google won't put ads on them anymore? They don't just not put ads. Sometimes it's not about the ads. Even Hank Green got mad at this. It was really about how they changed the algorithm to reprioritize the recommendation system. And so now ads won't be worth the same amount. And so this was those one bad egg type of styles. When Vine shut down, a lot of Viners moved to YouTube. And Vine, for anybody who doesn't know, is a sort of a shorter, these little like 10 second uh, video loops that people made. Then they were mostly little visual jokes kind of. But yeah. then it shut down. Vine was beautiful, yeah. just as a short tangent. Vine was, the way I used to put it, Vine is like writing a sentence in the grammar of video. It was just a very short, beautiful clips that were really made to, sh to, to say something very quickly, but effectively. That had a community of itself that was different than the YouTube community. But inside of that were these little, like, tiny pranksters, the, lo the Pauls, um, even Liza Koshy. Like, all of these pe people were in there as their own Viners. They used this platform beautifully. But when it closed, after that, they all moved to YouTube, and now they looked at, like, these new insurgent characters inside of YouTube. They were used to short form. They were used to burst information. And so... 
They were a little bit problematic to the old school YouTubers who had spent years perfecting the art of delivering their message, which was this, in many ways, their their version of an authentic concept of they pick a, a, a subject that they're going to talk about, but they embed it and weave it through their their topic. And so like uh, Hannah Harp's My Drunk Kitchen, she would do cook something while being inebriated, but she would also weave in like a subject, like she'd pick toxic masculinity and she'd talk about it behind while she's cooking drunk. And those are really, really beautifully well-made art forms of 10 minute videos. And now all of a sudden the Pauls who are used to six second formats show up and now how do they fill 10 minutes of time other than burning couches in their backyard? And right, so, these are like the fart mask yeah, kind of right. people. Yeah. And it becomes kind of wild. YouTube takes notice and says, well, this isn't going to be helpful. So now we have to change the algorithm. So they shift it. But because YouTube's algorithm, like Facebook and Twitter's, is a black box, those who have been inside the system, like Casey, Hank Green, Tyler, get affected by this algorithmic shift. And they're not ready for it. So now they're being demonetized. In other words, they're not being monetized at the same level. And they're, they now have to react to YouTube structure. So they're just mad that people aren't, their, their, their videos aren't coming up first on certain searches. Right. And they came up first before because of power law dynamics that were artificially inflating them. The only way a Tyler Oakley, a person who's really offering, I mean, he's a sweet guy, but he's offering very, very little to his audience. His response to a Taco Bell taco or, you know, or or 30 seconds on, on someone in, in you know, in a boy band or something. It's not without great insight. This is not rich, nutritious media. And now those guys are complaining that, oh, the the algorithm that we essentially hacked with our content to put our content above everything else up there online, well, it's not favoring us anymore. So now we're going to protest? It's basically what happened to the point where they understood there's the different communities inside of YouTube. But this isn't this isn't as problematic as what I think occurred soon after than that. I think the problematic of the demonetization was a reaction. But what ended up occurring was more people from outside of YouTube became interested in how to use YouTube as a tool. And my real study isn't so much of what Tyler does. My study is how Tyler's tools can be used by anybody. It's a YouTubing, being a YouTuber is a, a tool set. And that tool set is a populist tool set. It allows the common person to have access to it. And if you can mimic it, that noise, that, hey, guys, that is a noise. That's called the schwa. That's a, uh, it's a, uh, sound. And that, uh, sound, if you can mobilize that, you can make people look at you or hear you. So if you so sing So everybody song, has their, hey, guys? Everybody, every YouTuber can do a, a sing-songy voice. Hey, guys, if we so want to just I watch this. Instead of me, instead of, because now I say, you're on Team Human. <laughs> yeah. so I, I go, you're on Team Human? What do I do? Right. Like, you do that. <laughs> if you, <laughs> if you increase that. Do you like that? that, uh, that uh, you're on Team Human? You're on Team Human? But you're, uh, if you were a YouTuber, yeah. that's most likely how you would talk. You would shift. Be, in a podcast, it's a different voice than you would use in a video because people aren't, are usually using two screens or they're looking off or on their different tabs. Whereas a podcast is usually a singular act where you could hear it and you can't, your ears don't blink. And so you're set in that. But right. if you're not looking, you want to make sure the ears are listening or tuned in. So you have to create that voice. So there's a technique in that. There's also the bedroom. There's also the eye contact. There's also the jump cuts and the video uh, editing and the, um, the music cuts. Those are all the tools. These are all different things. In 2016, one of my biggest things that I started studying, as well as uh, Ryan Broderick from BuzzFeed, he focused on this very much, is a woman named Lauren Southern, a Canadian YouTuber who calls herself a journalist. She is now banned from the UK for overt racism. 
and she is she's teamed banned up. from the UK. But I mean, as her videos or her, her person, her human, yeah. <laughs> but she to <laughs> no. me is dangerous. What because did she, she say? Oh, her Twitter account was banned. I think she's been fully demonetized. And what I mean by that is she's been not deplatformed. YouTube continues to allow her on there. And what's deplatforming is means like Alex Jones is deplatformed, removed from can't the space. come on our can't platform come on at the all. space at all under your official name. You're not allowed to right. use right. Demonetized just means we're not going to let you run any ads. No ads. Um, and PayPal has banned her as well because her rhetoric is more dangerous than this. Her brand is fascist, is, is fascist in style. So like against black people? It, against immigrants, brown people. Anybody who's not of what she believes is her identity. So people of color to her are insurgents into the identity of spe- specific spaces. So she's teamed up with an identitarian from Austria. Identitarian? Identitarian is a group of heavy racists in Europe that are protecting borders to keep the identity of their countries. So these are like white nationalists. White nationalists, yes. I mean, the best way to call them is they're white nationalists. They're very dangerous. She, using YouTube, amplified her audience, then rented a boat, and then stopped a Doctors Without Borders ship in the Mediterranean, keeping refugees from reaching shore, from, from doing that. But her video was designed with the, hey guys, a lot of people have called me crazy. But I'm not. And what she's doing is using these techniques. Now, she's 2016, so she's a very new YouTuber. But these YouTubers or the idea of journalism, she's, com- she's co-opting these, to- these, these words to sell to her audience. And her niche, she's getting 300,000, 400,000 views per video. She has a very big following. She, her Twitter account is still allowed to be active. She's still allowed to be on YouTube. And her most recent effect is that she's going around to do this exact same thing. She stops immigrants from entering countries and re- records it and says, I'm not doing this. I'm just exposing how migrant camps work. And very much in the way that James James O'Keefe and Project Veritas was doing their work. But does she seem nice? I mean, does she I, pull... Wait, you, <laughs> if you don't know the content of what she's doing, is it just like, you know, wow, like Anthony, really Anthony Hopkins is playing, you know, when he's playing, what's his name, Hannibal. Right. And it's like, on the one hand, it's like, no, no, I don't want him to kill me or something. But he looks like a great dinner companion. You know what I mean? He's nice. But the kindest. <laughs> I mean, I read a, I read something once where it was like when you went to like uh, a Nazi's house, they were dressed nice. They invited you to dinner and they weren't they, they, they wore this outfit of kindness. But behind the scenes, they were hor- horrific humans. Right. You know, so in many ways, her she's a true believer of herself. She is. She's truly believes her her points. Her goal is to convert others to her po- her point of view. And so what she's doing is using YouTube's tools to do that. So she appears nice, I guess, under the terms of what or nice casual, is, or casual. But we have no idea what, I guess, just like we have no idea what anybody's like in real life. Right. We have no idea. She In real life, she might be, come on, bring me my meal now. She you could. know, yeah. Who knows? We don't know who she is. She could be a Russian is. spy. But same with Tyler. I mean, very few people who aren't close with Tyler, do they know who really Tyler is. Who's really Tyler Oakley? Like, who is he? Like a wrestler. You watch WWE. Do they go home and they don't just start speaking in these voices? You know? <laughs> they go right. home and maybe they're kind. They pet their cat, you know? But it's we don't manner. get that access. Right. They could be a sweet for all we know. Yeah, you we know, don't they, know. Yeah. But it's an act. If her act is genuine and she's using the YouTube tools, she's being very effective at the conversion process of turning other other people into her points of view because she seems authentic or she's right. presenting that authenticity. Because she understands the tools, she understands the vernacular, like any professional right. propagandist. Exactly. Now, the way you started, though, it sounded like you were saying that there's a, a 
a positive populism to this, that almost any kid can kind of learn these tools, learn this vernacular and reach an audience. Or... I, I think this is the most important part and the most important part for Team Human is that YouTube's real function originally is a place or a space for marginalized voices. And I think that's really important. And I think it's important, too, to, to shout out to Mark Christian at Northwestern. His work in open TV really focused on what marginalized voices were in YouTube spaces. Because YouTube did that, offered that. In traditional media spaces, we don't get to see marginalized voices because they represent not the general large audience that Hollywood wants to prioritize. So the marginalized voices used YouTube to do that. So Diaries and it's interesting, though, that, that when I was a kid... They came up with a, a cable television, and then we got two or three public access channels in every town. And we all thought that every, all the weird people were going to start using public access, but almost nobody did. It was like the same two shows yeah. aired all day. Well, there's a lot of effort in making community television. I tried that once. There's a and lot you don't of work. Get the, and you don't have unicorn possibilities. You're going to reach your whole town at best. It's mm -hmm. like pirate radio. You know, kids today, they want to reach the whole globe, right. which on theory on YouTube you could. And uh, Issa Rae, uh, Diaries of, of an Awkward Black Girl, becomes insecure on YouTube because she's able to use that platform to pr make a product that she would not have ha had access to otherwise. What up, guys? It's your girl, Liza. Coming at you. And welcome back to my YouTube channel. And if your name's not back, well, welcome to... Speaking of welcome, thank you for watching this video instead of going straight down to the comments to read about this, it. Get back she wouldn't have, you you would have had to find an agent, a manager, a script, a, a, a project. Same with Justin Bieber, sure. Bo Burnham. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are... They are leveraged in there. And inside of this, I think it's important that YouTube still represents a space for like people like Zach Anner, who um, has cerebral palsy. And he's able to do investigative, I, I call it investigative journalism. He goes around New York City seeing where spaces aren't accessible to people with disabilities. And he, uses, he works with Soul Pancake and Rain Wilson's channel. And it's really beautiful content. Jordan Bone is a quadriplegic makeup artist. And she gives opportunity to show people can have the access of YouTube that still gives those voices there. But the problem I'm finding now is there's a catacresis with the, the term of marginalization where somebody like Lauren Southern walks around saying she's marginalized that, and she's able, she's taking these words. She's taking this because she's seeing the way that these uh, rhetoric of, of our politics and our dangerous fascistic move movements. And she's saying, well, white people are becoming marginalized. And so she's using YouTube to say, well, I'm, I'm a marginalized voice as well. And that's dangerous because YouTube isn't saying get off our platform. They're saying, well, she's another user. And that, that hands offness to me is, and the algorithm itself is so odd to me because I think that I'm not saying YouTube should be regulated in that way, but I think they, they need to take some responsibility as a media platform, as you've mentioned in previous episodes, where it's like these are these are media platforms. These are media outlets. Mark Zuckerberg runs a media outlet. He hosts content on his site. It isn't just user generated. That's a responsibility to the audience. And if the algorithm itself, if I go ask a question about immigration, and two clicks later, I end up on Lauren Southern's video. That's could be dangerous because Lauren Southern has so many views. By accident, she ends up as my third click. And that's, by popularity, she ends up as your third click. Right. So then, if this is a democratic platform, I mean, this is always the perennial problem. I mean, because I'll do interviews occasionally on the show, and then realize the person I'm talking to is a fascist. And then it's happened a couple of times, and or or what I consider to be a fascist, or raise it, or saying, you know, someone I interviewed was saying, you know, that. Uh, uh, that black men aren't really arrested more than white men. And if they are, it's because they don't know how to speak English properly. And I was like, oh, well, you know. And then Yikes. when I say, well, you can't be on Team Human, 
he's like, well, I, you're, you're going to censor me. Then you're not, you know, then you're not genuinely inclusive. Right. And that's what Mark Zuckerberg, the newest report came out, that Mark Zuckerberg and the team were nervous of being criticized by voices that were saying we're being censored rather than taking control and saying, but the voices you're saying are dangerous. So they were seeing it from two different points of view. Zuckerberg could have been like, this leads down a bad path, but instead says, I'd rather not censor them because I don't want the backlash. In other words, I don't want to lose the users because it's, it's more about the volume of users that he can grow. And Facebook is in a plateau stage at this point, but YouTube is still growing. Well, there's also a certain kind of a free market, free society uh, uh, assumption under there, too, that if we try to quiet or repress the neo-Nazi people or whatever, it only gets worse. We got to just let everything out in the sun and... Yeah, as if it'll sort itself out. Now, I think that yeah. would have been the case if we don't have an algorithm that prioritizes that type of exciting content. That's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing that people don't get. If it was a neutral level playing field where things that are great rise to the surface, yeah. But once you have algorithms that are kind of leveraging power laws to create superstars based on, you know, knee-jerk, sensationalist choice-making. And it's to the viewer, it's exciting. To YouTube, they like it. It's whatever they see next is how they can make the next thing thing. So... Oftentimes, you fall in the black hole of YouTube. You end up sitting there, and it keeps you going. Zenup Tufeki talks about this all the time, how we're, we created a dystopia to sell ads. In the digital world, though, persuasion architectures can be built at the scale of billions, and they can target, infer, understand, and be deployed at individuals one by one by figuring out your weaknesses. And they can be sent to everyone's private screen. Her ta TED Talk's great because it's so creepy how every time we then watch the next video, it forever changes how we'll use that environment. So from then on, we're always in that captive, immersive space. Yeah, I know. I've been working on this piece about, uh, you know, that before we completely get rid of Facebook, because I feel like Facebook's on its in its decline now. We hit you know, peak Facebook, but that before we uh, before we get rid of it to almost exploit the mirror to use the fact that, OK, this is what Facebook's algorithms think of me. If I don't want it to think this of me, what can I change about my online habits to have it present me the newsfeed that I think is legitimate? Yeah, that's my the article I just had come out today was about how we have to start looking at algorithms as media environments. They where TV, you could sit and call a friend and you're watching the same television show. When you go on Facebook, if you were to give everybody a blank laptop, everybody in your class, and then tell them the next day, the next day, 24 hours later, to all do the same search, and you went down the search, you'd find that it starts having discrepancies around seven or eight. How yesterday were they even, and now a day later they're different? It's because each of them are getting a, new, a unique media environment. Right. And that's without even the you know IP address and all the other right. stuff that they use to target you. Well, we don't even talk about, I talk a lot about data valence and how we're tracked, Facebook tracks you offline as well. When If your phone number is attached to your Walgreens card or your Dwayne Reed card or your Stop and Shop card, and you use that, that data goes back to Facebook and they know where you were and when you were and what you purchased. So that goes all the way back. So you're using Facebook when you're at the supermarket. So you don't even realize that, but that's part of your media diet. Your media diet includes purchases that occur offline. So we're consuming right. Facebook all the time. Right. But that means that the world around us, or at least the online world around us, is reconfiguring itself in real time based on what the algorithms think that they can extract from me. That's right. 
And I like to think, oh, well, it's relative. It's a biofeedback. I do something. It does something. I do something. So it creates this kind of plastic reality. But it's not just it's not neutral. It's not the Tao of physics where, you know, my observation of reality changes reality. It's my observation of reality clues in the algorithm on how better to screw with me. Except disguised as making convenience. But right. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like how we will per- easily purchase something for more money if it's right next door. But if we have to walk somewhere, it's just not worth it. So Facebook's just simply disguising it as a convenience to us. Now, as we move from intentionally in- intentional immersion into a-, a-, a world filled with, you know, augmented reality or maybe even becoming virtual reality, uh, doesn't that even get worse? I am completely fascinated at this point. This was a field that I stumbled into. I feel that mixed reality is our next step. I really do. I really feel as if virtual reality is a stepping stone, but virtual reality has an immobility. We're tied to it. We're stuck to it. We we can't cross a street wearing a mask. No, exactly. It's like LSD versus Prozac or something. Yeah, you're stuck. (laughs) And so you don't want to be stuck. And we're knowing how we are as humans and why the mobile phone actually exists and why it's so pervasive. Virtual reality is too tethered. Mm-hmm. Where our phone is our tether, but it's tethered in the way McLuhan wanted to see it as an extension. Yeah, no, and also Where... virtual reality is such an unsafe feeling for humans. You know, you don't know who's going to whap you in the back of the head. You know, right. it's ooh, I know. You know, that just brought up a whole new line: the vulnerability of virtual reality. Yeah, is quite a quite an exp- a way of thinking about it. You never know. Uh, not only that, but I've had students accidentally been punched in the face by students who were playing virtual reality, and they make a swing and they're oh, standing a little too close. Yeah. Our our, space, our lab is a little too small, let's put it that way. And our mask has too much paint on its mask from people walking into walls. But that vulnerability of space is also part of that, where the HoloLens itself, you could look through it and augment, add digital objects that you could interact with in Who makes that? Space. It's like a Google That's Glass Microsoft. kind of a thing? It's like Google Glass, but it works. So it's glasses <laughs> that you put on, it's sort a of? Full, it's a computer, not just glasses. The whole computer is on your head. And you look through a visor and you interact with digital objects that you can actually touch with your hands in physical space. So the digital object has no force feedback, no haptics. But what am, am I seeing through? Am I seeing some reality, like a one-way mirror? I'm seeing some reality it's, through there. Yes. It's, not just not just the camera's reality. Not just camera's reality. Some reality that's been presented digitally. So it's like po- playing Pokemon Go, except I can poke the Pokemon with my hand. Okay. Like, it's more than just the object in space. It's a physical, it's an object that takes a physical attribute. Right. But if there's someone across the room, I'll see them. Yes. Okay. Yep. Although blurred. Yeah. But this is also, these, this isn't new. Um, currently, Jaron Lanier is working on the HoloLens, and so is uh, Mark Bolas. I mean, huh. they're both at uh, Microsoft. But Meredith Bricken, back in 1989 or 90, when she was on the Siberia Project, brought this up about what's the what's the interface without an interface. She was saying the biggest inhibitor is the, the wall of your eyes. Like, how do you interact with digital objects beyond that? The translucent lens would work better. Right. So this is fairly well, this is lengthy what, d- yeah, development. Warren it's just Robinette. we're now catching up. I mean, yes. I'm sure you read about yep, him at the University of North Carolina mm-hmm. had these these kind of transparent interfaces for um, uh, uh, airplane repairmen. Mm-hmm. So they could look at the, they could see the engine, but they could see the overlay right. of what part they're supposed to do something to. And I think that's fascinating. And that's where like the human interface lab comes from and all of that, where Furnace moves over to Seattle. But all of this is, this is that history. I'm studying an alternate history to um, virtuality. And aside from the histories that we're focused on through a lot of the consumer's approach we have today, I'm focusing on like an alternative history where virtuality succeeded in software. It went through the virtual world space rather than the virtual hardware space. Mm-hmm. So I'm focusing on that. But I, I think a lot of my conclusion in my project 
is about how this technology is not just addicting, but is pushed on us. It is something that as a consumerist approach, we want people to participate in it because talk about captive audiences. One thing that Zuckerberg was missing and one thing that I think this is I don't think this is proven. It's been it's been stated a few times in trade magazines. But one of the objects of data uh, valence he didn't have was where do our eyes actually look? Where does our head do things? How tall are we? How do we move our arms? When you put a mask and gloves on or put a mask and controllers, now the extra data comes in. What if we're watching a television show? Some audience members might not want to watch the show. They might want to look at the lights. They might want to look at the people in the audience. Now we have that data. Because we have a 360 degree space, extra embodiment data becomes part of the, the system. So the more we wear these headsets, the more we're giving convenience of, well, no more cell phones. You wear the cell phone on your face. It's just easier. And now we have gesture control. So we know how our hands work. We know our body inside of the digital space. Right. Well, they're not even, I mean, the people that are harvesting that data are really not even using it. Oh, how can we help people move their hands better? It's just to get more data points for just, you know, random computer generated machine learning uh, assumptions about yeah. how they can make us do other stuff. That's my big criticism of how most books today end, where they're always like, well, I always get a phone call about how we could help somebody with who's immobile or how do we do this? And I'm always like, well, now they know how do they buy things when they're immobile. Like right. there's there's an extra step to that. Like there's more to it than that. And the algorithm itself is non-discussed when we talk about virtual reality. That's going to be embedded. All that data is going to be quantized. And talk about an authenticity. The way that your facial expressions work, it's only a matter of time before we create a methodology or a tool set for the authenticness of a face gesture. So we have the schwa, we have the hand movements, we have the jump cuts. But soon we'll have the perfect, well, if you just raise your eyebrow 13 seconds, your audience likes that more. Right. And then <laughs> all that, but all that does, and even learning that, if we're going to justify it as offering some empowerment to somebody, we got to look at, well, what do we mean by empowerment here? You know, for the most part, empowerment means the ability to buy something on Amazon, I guess. Yeah. I mean, or to is work that, as a is gig that worker. truly agency if you're making a purchase that you may have been convinced to purchase three weeks ago and that you didn't know because it was just a long line of steps. Did you make that purchase or was it given to you? And I know that Facebook a while back once made this great boast. We have an 80% accuracy on people who will be engaged in two weeks. Right. And that was a big boast. And I was like, that's... So then now you start asking, are they getting engaged because they have agency or is Facebook pushing them to an engagement? And you're like, well, where right. are we? <laughs> and then, I mean, the first thing I thought of, and I still talk about it, is, you know, the, the, the big, the question that asks is, well, now that we got 80%, how do we get that up to 90? And the way we get it up to 90 is by changing that behavior of that anomalous 20%. You know, how do we get those 20 to fall in line and up the, up the, the accuracy of our prediction? Yeah. And that's, I think you brought this up before, like the idea of fascism as a space with no choice, like mm. that we don't know who's giving us that. And I think the black box of the algorithm is kind of that. And this is where I think, and I, I want to ask you this question too, is like, this is way different than the way computation worked in the nineties when there was no algorithm, where computation was more of a linear mm. un, a development. And I, I want to ask you, when, when you were watching this happen, when you were watching this unfold, by the way, just so we know where we're coming from this, my subject starts at Cyberthon in 1990 uh -huh. and then diverts from there, takes a, a separate path. So I'm following the, the alternative path 
through software from there. When this was when this was developing and visual media technologies were becoming software based, was there any thought at the time of an algorithm, or was there like, or was it more of like usage, user computer user computer? Like, was there a thought at that time of adding in predictive technologies at that? At that no, moment? the closest to algorithms was uh, uh, sort of the cybernetic feedback loop insight, and that was more. Uh, coming up with a fractal equation, you know, so you put in a few inputs, but then you watch it. It was more like spirograph, if oh, you remember yeah. that. You would set things in motion and then watch them grow. So it felt much more like um, the, the metaphors we were using were like the, of a garden. A lot of the art projects were looking at uh, interactive gardens and, you know, so you'd create maybe an immersive physical space, but the idea was that it would have emergent properties. Oh, I see. So we were into emergence, but it was like you'd set it off. You know, it set it, you go. But that had to be exciting. It was exciting. Yeah, that had to be like, that. a lot of the study that we're seeing today and the 90s is hype. Like the excitement of that, but we're not sure where that leads. We're not sure how that, like I think when we're talking about garden, I remember there's an experiment, I think it was Brickens, of uh, the octopus's garden, an immersive space where you could go in and actually like be underwater with things, but you could also choose to be an octopus. And then what do you do with your other six arms? And like that, those are really interesting concepts. Uh -huh. And But the hype of, well, what can we do next, may have become a little bit of a runaway at the time. And that runaway was not at the time in the 1990s. I don't think the computing power had that ability to process the runaway experience of that. Right. And and you got to understand the thrill of it was um, maybe it's because we were all raised on television. So we couldn't do anything to the screen. Oh, it wow. was like that's where Batman and Walter Cronkite lived, you know, but not me. And then you get something like The Palace. So The Palace was a failed uh, Time Warner Pathfinder virtual 2D virtual space where you you it was like second life before anything like that you you got a gif of yourself and you would then go into a room with these other gifs of other people so you could go to like a buddhist temple room or a playroom and your little gif couldn't move it just sat there so i had a little buddha one i had a little ren and stimpy one i had ren i had stimpy um and you'd go in a room and then you'd type and you'd get a little bubble for, uh, like a cartoon bubble of the things that you said but to be in there with these other people just typing little things and having was a thrill a minute it was yeah, it's fascinating. It was just, great. You're bringing back so many memories of chat rooms when you're saying that, but having that actual graphic interface of, it, of Avatar so is great. So cool. <laughs> yeah. And and it really was, but it wasn't um and what were we thinking in there was, well, someday I'll be seeing everything here. Yeah. It'll be all immersive 3D or something or it but here's where I I find I'm working with a psychologist now at my lab about um, some of the VR experiments. And one of the things we, we bring up as our case study all the time is in VR chat, which is kind of like the ultimate outcome of that. VR chat doesn't require the bubbles. You could just speak. Your avatar could speak to another avatar inside of the immersive space. You walk via a flick of your thumb. So you walk walking around and then you hop into your own body. But a very odd and unfortunate situation happened in VR chat where a member of VR chat had a seizure and no one knew what to do. They were all in different spaces and the body, the, the, the chat body st stood still and you could hear the unfortunate incident happening and everybody was like, give him space, give him air. All the avatars didn't know how to act and they were like, give him space. 
Like there's yeah. but that that humanness re-entered the avatar at that moment. And this ultimate chat room became an embodied chat room in that very short little bit. And that, if you want to talk about authenticity, there was the reveal of all the humans like inside of these avatars for a brief right. moment. Well, I mean, there are these moments. I mean, and even uh, uh, I don't know if it's a lesser one. It was the you know the woman who died in uh, uh, World of Warcraft. It was a, a great World of Warcraft player, and she died in real life. And they did a World of Warcraft funeral for her. And while they were doing the funeral, one of the other raiding parties came and killed them all. Oh, God. <laughs> oh no! And it, it was this giant question of is that ethical? Are they, you allowed to kill them in the game? And they're like, yeah, of course we can kill them. They're in the game. That's where they decided to have their funeral. So we went and killed them. If they were going to have it in the real world for the real person who died, and it was um, uh, it was this long debate, but it was another one of those crossover moments yeah. of like, no, wait a minute. What's human versus the digital <laughs> space or the game? There's a, right. a, a tale. Re- I mean, that's on another anecdote. There's a recent story of a guy who pl- as, played as an NPC inside an NPC, a non-playable character, computer character. He pretended to be one for years and slowly learned all the tricks of every character and then sabotaged them all and oh killed God. every avatar and won the game. And inside of that was this long play of utilizing the game's platform. But this is an analogy for Almost every digital platform. Like, this is like, you could replace this on everything, which is, who do we know is the NPC? Who's the actual character? And who's the one playing us? Are we playing the game? And it's all inside of this. That's the whole, I mean, that was the premise of this book, you know, programmer be programmed. That's right. what yes, that absolutely. really was about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, who who knows the rules? Who's writing the rules? You know, and you can't really know. But then th- th- that's the problem with the market, too. It's like we created this market in order for people to be able to interact with each other. And then people financialize the market. They think that they're just a bank and a non-player character. But, oh, no, the banks are the ones ruling the landscape and the one taking money from everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's not new. It's it's not new. Very is old. This is how it is. <laughs> it's like renaissance to now. Like this is after. Are we dealing with a proto future feudalism or like to, to comment on right. things I think I've heard you say in keynotes where I've been to, you know, that's is that the, the framework we're pre-building at this moment? Is it? I mean, and, <laughs> and you know, on a certain level, it's like, well, are we, we'd be lucky, you know, to get feudalism at this point yeah, at this compared point, yeah. to, you know, the just, horrors that could be, you know, <laughs> I know yeah. some benevolent feudalism. You find a good, you know, if Tyler Oakley wants to be our feudal Lord, I mean, that's better than Zuckerberg. Yes. Yeah. Who will likely be with the user data that he has now will potentially could be a president at this point just by mobilizing his data. I, but I don't it think his popularity odd. would hold up any longer. But that data is valuable. That That's ourselves. That's us. And every time we quantize us in user time, in time spent, in things we do without considering its implications or its intentionality, we're slowly giving ourselves into that. And we're slowly moving ourselves into a digital version of ourselves that could be duplicated and sold into something else. And I think that's something where I... I I've heard this on other shows too, which is that we really do have to think community-based. We have to talk to each other about it. And it's like the slogan of the show, like find the others and like really like find them, find them. This isn't like a look, here they are, but like like actually discuss with them and, and do this because in a weird way, I think almost everyone's shocked by this. Like it's one of those things where you could almost like talk to anyone and they're just like, oh my gosh, what the heck? And you're like, yeah, but they're like, why wouldn't I know about this? It's like, but why would you know about this? Like that's that's a big concept too. Is obviously you're not going to be told this. This isn't something that somebody's going to give you the manual and be like, by the way, this is what's going on. 
These are things that keep you from that. The critical... Oh, so back to Casey Neistat. Not to demean him, but in the middle of his commercial, in the middle of the Samsung video, he talks about the pros of being a YouTuber. And he says, you will live a life so fast and so full, you won't have time to think about anything. And to me, that's such a dangerous sentence. He basically says, We're, you have to occupy yourself with this so much that critical thinking doesn't, isn't necessary. It's just production. It's Trumpian. I mean, because he yeah. just said, you know, he doesn't think with his brain. He thinks with his gut. And right. And it's better. What does that even mean? Like, that, that is just instinct. At that point, it's base instincts. And that, right. And that's dangerous because we don't have any critical view of that. Well, it's because the, any of the tools he would use to gain a critical view are not trustworthy. Right. What I'm going to believe the scientists. I'm going to believe the newspaper. I'm going to believe all those books out there. No, I'm going to just know China's bad. Russia's good. Right. You know, <laughs> that constant con- and my biggest I teach an environmental humanities course too about digital identity. I, it's, I've embedded what we are on Instagram into climate change. That's really what I focus on. Mm. This recent climate report is devastating. But to hear somebody say, well, the science isn't in that quote. Is phenomenal because that takes that t- speaks to an audience. Trump is a is an influencer. He is like a YouTuber. He speaks specifically to a very core group of people that when they hear him, they believe him. Just as Tyler, and this is completely different. I'm not comparing Tyler to, to Trump in any way. But the way that you would speak to somebody saying we want a Taco Bell thing and creates that product, Trump's way of being an influencer creates that rhetoric that causes people to say, well, the science isn't in, and they're just parroting this dangerous act. Well, it's partly because, I mean, really what we're doing is we have, I mean, it feels to me like this is a television problem, almost more than an internet problem. The cool thing about television is you get picture and you get sound. So here's a picture. Oh, look, there's a caravan of, you know, 10 people marching somewhere. And CNN or MSNBC will tell us these are refugees seeking asylum. And they'll say some whole sentences. Trump can say these are killers coming to get you. And you're, or if if Trump's words, if his linguistic overlay on that picture is more mimetically potent, then that's going to stick on the picture. It doesn't matter how much news gathering we're doing. If he can label the construct as look at the invasion, look at the invasion. He doesn't need no facts. Then you see the picture. Now it's anchored as invasion, invasion, invasion. That's what's in our. And, and he made done. it up. He and he up. made it up. It's completely fabricated. But 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 as from that worldview, if you are going with your gut, it doesn't matter what it really is. No. There is no really <laughs> is. That's my, this is virtual reality. Right. It's what I label it as. And that's my third stream of research is memes, memes and culture, because he, I, I believe he's a true Trump is a meme. He is a meme that we've elected president. We could I usually cite Benjamin's work with this because the mechanical reproduction of Trump as meme, if you replace that thing using Trump as meme and go to every type of meme lord, meme lords are usually teenagers who are posting memes. Um, if you go to those and follow any of the far right sites or any of the Trumpian ones, you could find that they're repeating and parroting, but really amplifying it into twisted nihilistic approaches that are image based more than anything else, but out of context and easily digestible, mm. easily. Like you could eat it and be like, ah, they're, they're, they're coming for us. They're going to storm our fence. And it's like they're people who are leaving a strife area. They are in danger. They, they're escaping a world where they could get killed by a cartel for a place of what they assume is safety. And instead of achieving that safety, which is given to them by the rights of being a human, they're reached and shot at with tear gas because it's made up. 
It's well, right. made up. That's why all you have to do is make up a hypothetical. Well, if they throw rocks, we'll shoot at them. So now you have in people's heads the image of these refugees throwing rocks. Are they throwing rocks? No. We but, it's, <laughs> but then I blame, I was, previous to becoming an academic, I was a reality t- TV producer. So really, a real reality TV. Yeah. And what was your what was your best show? Uh, it wasn't. I w- don't even want to call it a show. It was a. Uh, I was worked for MTVU, and it was the college version of that. And we did um, a reality show about college couples. And it was. I don't even want to name it because. Uh, it's did you work for Todd? Uh, uh, what's his name? The anthropologist guy there. No, I worked yeah. uh, with a small team because MTV. We were situated in between my Super Sweet Sixteen and the Gauntlet, so we were like right, right. in between. And you got things. paid millions of dollars. I mean, I, I got paid like a hundred dollars a day. So it's it like, like vice, nothing. Like it was, vice yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> but I got to fly for three months, eighty-two thousand miles, and not sleep. So that was nice. Did you get to keep the miles yourself? Uh, they yeah, but then I had no money, so they expired after eighteen months. Oh, yeah, I'm it was sorry. super depressing. But during this time, I I realized the reason I left television as a producer and a post coordinator is when I was flying, when I was doing this, I went over to my boss who was who now I think is still in television. And he I went to him and I said, we're ruining these these teenagers lives. And he said, they signed the contract. And I was like, oh, and that was and that's when I was like, wait, is it possible that reality TV could cause fascism? Because my technique, our technique, which we lied to our contestants, reality shows a very small cruise. And for the most part, you'd show up with your camera and your boom boom operator and you capture everything. You, the rule is the contract requires them to wear a microphone anytime you they have to be recording anytime they're awake, except when they're using the bathroom. And unfortunately, they forget to turn off in the bathroom. But they have to wear it all the time. But the reason they're doing that is because we could cut any bite from their conversations into what they're saying. Right. And so when they're when you're watching a reality show and you hear them, but you don't see them actually saying it, they're not actually saying it. The technique is to ask them enough questions that they're able to answer your sentence that you wrote in your script. And yes, the script, which we wrote a year before we started shooting. And so the script has to be fulfilled. So it's script, casting, shooting. That's the way it worked. So when people watch it, they think it's real. But when they think it's real and authentic, they're not understanding that it took a year of work and casting to pick the person that would likely say the sentences we want them to say. And in doing so, they are given a version of reality, a virtual reality, that is consumable, but not real. But they can't discern the difference. There's no critical version of reality television. It's built off of the non-critical approach. Right. And if poor little Donald Trump was living in that for long enough, he came to believe this is Reality. And what was his job? Executive producer of a reality show. So he knows how to cut, use the tools of television against us. Right. But from his perspective, I mean, maybe it is against us, but can you get, do you think we'll get to the place where we don't, we no longer believe in reality? That it's so subjective that, you know, that all these things may be going on and whoever made the best mimetic assignment <laughs> will declare what's actually happening here. King meme lord. Yeah, the, the, the real meme lords. Uh, that's a really good question. That is, to me, the like a, a very cynical approach, which is that eventually we just lose trust in all authority systems. And then then what? Do we re- Is there a restart button or do we just keep going into the non-real? Well, we have, so how do you think feudal lords... You, I mean, if you were born a peasant in, a fe- in feudalism, you knew what the way things were, that that guy is in charge and I'm this. And it's like, why did they agree? Why didn't they just storm the guy? You know, or... There's been peasant revolts. I guess. They may not have been fully successful, but there's been, I mean... So uh, we'll have one eventually. But unfortunately, they're peasant revolts. 
that means we have to get to peasants. Like that's that the We're system has to get yeah. there. Don't worry. Yeah. So that that's that will eventually degrade to that, and then the revolt. But I do believe that a revolution, one way or another is necessary, maybe not a violent one, but a way in which we interact with these digital spaces where we have to make a stand to say, maybe we don't want this to be working the way it is. Maybe we don't want to do that. And I think there's been several times where there's been attempted strikes, user strikes, but they haven't really been successful. But that type of agency is capable. We are capable of saying no to the way these platforms work. We just have to maybe step out from these platforms and say, this is... Um, these are our friends. These is our community. Let's see what this is. And somebody I recently spoke to said, you know, you draw like circles around you and make that circle wider. And like, as you do that, you start talking to them. That's a physical, that's effort. That's one thing. And I think Facebook or any these platforms require no effort, right. so it doesn't require it. But when you do it in real life, it has bigger rewards. It has much more of a feeling of like, I made an, I made a change. I did something. I did something with my community. I did something with another person. As opposed to just being alone all the time. Mm-hmm. Which, like in uh, at the end of uh, Generation Like, that is one of the best endings. My students love <laughs> the end scene where she just turns off her camera and looks down. And that's it. That's the yeah. moment where it's just it is she's sad. by and herself. She kind of clicks her little mouth and she's got like her... her she, oh, she taps her fingers on her oh, yeah. on her smartphone that it's over. I know. I felt so <laughs> weird about doing that. And I, there was a line of narration. Um, you know, it was something. It's great. You know, it feels great until it doesn't or something. Yeah. And then, and then, but then we took that out because it was just like too. It was like the image spoke for itself that she's when she's not connected to her 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 video people. You know, she may as well not exist. And that's my biggest problem with Gen Z or even the gig economy. We're taught that there's a second industry that's capable of giving us profit, money, and commodity. But what we're also saying is, if your first job isn't fun, do a second job. Someday, a second job will be normalized. So then we'll get a third job. Like these, That second job of being an influencer is the gig economy, which works until it becomes your second job. You right. didn't lose your first job. You didn't have two jobs. Right. And then what used to be the time you spent doing entertainment, you're spending doing this this fruitless and futile like career development stuff. It's like, oh, now I'm going to you know, go onto LinkedIn and change my profile and do my this under the belief that we're, that we're living in a world where if you commit and work hard and are friendly and whatever – that you can make it that you I mean I talk to kids in my in my classes here at Queens and they really believe that if they if any one of them made a concerted effort that they would be able to keep themselves alive on YouTube it happens to so many people to so many and I said no it's like the lottery it's like not even like the lottery and they oh no it if you if you're committed if you work hard it's a harsh reality there's the statistics if you just look statistically yeah you get a, a drafted, fully drafted to one NBA team and one NFL team, statistically, to become a successful YouTuber. That's the same odds that you have. To get onto both? That Your odds of becoming a six or seven figure earner on YouTube is the same odds of becoming drafted into two different sports. That's how wow. low your odds are. Have there been people drafted into two different sports? I think Michael Jordan, but that's it. <laughs> but oh, because he did baseball I'm saying for like a while, that, yeah. Just in numbers. Because you have 1.5 billion users on YouTube. And you only have about 4,000 channels making six figures. And now 4,000 is a big number. It's a lot. Yeah. But 4,000 out of 1.5 billion barely shows up. Right. But it's 4,000 is more than the number of 
probably actors making six figures, right? That's probable. Which is why Vanity Fair, I think, oh no, Variety, I'm sorry. Variety, once a year does the recognizability test. Who's the most recognizable star? Uh-huh. And they always put it as star in quotes. Usually, since 2014, I believe at this point, no, 2015. Since 2015, the top five have always been internet stars. Really? Just by volume, it works. I mean, there's just the niche of volume of internet stars outnumbers traditional stars by yeah, that. But more people recognize Oprah than Joe Rogan, right? At, at this point, I think the most recognizable is Jake Paul, or it might be Logan Paul, one of those two. And then it's like, the next most recognizable is number six, and it's Jennifer Lawrence. So it's like, it leads all the way up to really? Not KSI, and then Brad and Angelina. Of, and then PewDiePie. No, I don't even think they rank at this point. This is like... They're just not as relevant to the viewers, the young viewers anymore. This is the teenager survey. So teenagers don't see traditional stars as it because their their media f- platforms are television and internet occur in one screen, the laptop or their cell phone. It's no longer like multiple media environments. They exist inside of one. So their recognizability is who's going to speak to them. Now, Brad and Angelina and Tom Cruise and Jennifer Lawrence, they speak to other actors on fiction or on a movie or to interviewers. Whereas Tyler Oakley speaks to me. He speaks directly to me. He doesn't talk to his friends. Even when he's collabing, the two of them look at me. And through that collab, they're both speaking as friends to me. So it's a different way of recognizing them. So I see them. I know them. Right. So if I'm Taco Bell, why should I buy an ad on the Super Bowl if Tyler Lawrence is going to speak directly to them about, about us? Right. And if I'm going to be... Indirect communication with my person. And PewDiePie is a great example. He's got 69 million subscribers. Hmm. There's only only the Super Bowl is like, what, 130 million at their peak? The series finale of Breaking Bad, I think, had 13 million viewers. That was the high, one of the highest cable shows. So if you're thinking as an advertiser, I would like to have 13 million viewers every time. PewDiePie. Every single episode he puts online, even though it's he's... I, I think he's just a, not a great person. Every single time he does it, though, he's got 13 million viewers, 13 million consumers. Now, I think he's been de- demonetized, so I don't think his ads are as effective. So now it's all embedded. So now it's all sponsored. So he has to make mention of a product. And now his viewers say, well, PewDiePie likes it, so I must like it. It's a t- good technique. <laughs> you, sound, you sound diminished there. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> thank you, thanks for joining us on yeah. Team Human. <laughs> It's been really cool having you here. Uh, you know, we're really, we're really working hard and doing good things. And I got uh, some microphones and we got the recorder here. And, you know, so thank you, everybody. You know, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the voice. I mean, that's it's uh, hard. It's hard to do. You know, Brooke Gladstone has it a little bit on, on the media. She does. Yeah. It's a lot of attack a- sort of a thing. But. Wow. It's an effort. It is a job. It is a technique. It is a skill. It is something to study. And I don't think we're spending enough time focusing on it. So I really think that's something we have to start looking at. Well, especially as we start to see our kids speak to one another and us aping those linguistic strategies and then start to think, what does that mean? And what are they saying? And how are they feeling? And uh, oh, my gosh. It just, you know... I I like your I mean your advice is the same as mine is 
look at people in the eye and try to, you know, uh, retrieve some of the ancient mechanisms for establishing rapport and connection with others because they give us a defense against certain kinds of social programming that we don't have when we're out in the uh, in the the internet sphere. Mm-hmm. That's the authentic. the The person you speak to is the person. Like that's that's who it is. Right, that the authenticity online is trying to imitate or recreate the authenticity of real life. It's yep. not. And it's only a matter of time before we've quantized real life enough to duplicate that inside of virtual reality so that we don't have to have this because this is just, man, just breathing is just so hard. Right. But any <laughs> element of life that we can't quantize falls off the map. Right. Unless we choose to keep it on the map. We have to put that effort into it. And that's a lot of work. But I think that's important right. because if we don't do that work, and this is where I to feel a little dystopic about it, is I think a lot of VR and immersive studies is because we know or they know that we're moving toward a future of climate change and immobility. We're going to be more so based inside of a space, less movement, except for those who we're not even talking about, the migrant crisis of the United States, all the coastal communities having to move away. But then what? Then where do we put them? We have to give them entertainment. So. I think there is a knowing complicity in these platforms of knowing that we have to be consumed and non-moving to do this. So communicating with others starts that spark of like, we talk about it, then we can make action. And then there's awareness. And really awareness is just step one. I mean, whatever we do with that is that's the most important thing afterward. But the awareness isn't being offered as much as we should be at this moment. Well, and that's why we're here. That's why you're here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for helping make people aware. And, uh, and and more willing to come out of their little virtual shells. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for doing the show. And this is, I mean, thank you for being you and teaching and everything. Thanks. You too. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was social media and virtual reality scholar Jamie Cohen. We'll be back in the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens next week with new strategies for intervention in the machine. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.